Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. And with us today, we have Lisa Cupolo. Did I pronounce that correctly? It's Cupolo. Cupolo. Yeah, it's a tough Cupolo. one. Cupolo. Okay. Thank Lisa you. Cupolo, author of Have Mercy on Us, which is the winner of the W.S. Porter Prize for Short Story Collections. Now, Lisa was born in Niagara Falls. She has been a paparazzi photographer in London, an aid worker in Kenya, a script doctor in L.A., and a literary publicist at HarperCollins in Toronto. Her stories have been published widely, and she holds a B.A. in philosophy from the University of Western Ontario, a graduate degree in portrait photography from the London Institute, and an MFA from the University of Memphis, and has lived all over the world and currently resides in Southern California. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Thank you so much, Monica. (laughs) I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So in your bio, a part I kind of skipped over, um, mentioned that you had a severe illness as a teen and Mm -hmm. that that influenced, how does that, tell us a little bit about that and how that influences your writing. Um, it influences my writing a lot. I, I, I say now that, you know, being ill when I was, I got ill when I was 13 with uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and hospitalized for, you know, in and out of hospital for a year and high school, obviously was a bit of a, you know, it was just awful. And um, so I had a really, a lot of time alone, a lot of time for introspection. And before that, I'd been an athlete. And had no sense of writer. I mean, my family was read books, but it wasn't a literary household. And so, you know, I didn't have a lot of anything to do all day. So I did start to read a lot. And I mean, I didn't, you know, we had, um, you know, Robert Ludlum and all those kinds of books around our house. And then I started to go to the library more and get more into reading. And uh, so it's what it made me do was to be an observer of people more than anything else. Because I had to sit out on, you know, every gym class. I sat out at every dance. I sat out at a lot of life um, during my teens and also in my 20s, although I was lucky enough to travel. But I I learned to look at people in a different way. And I think that's what illness does or the otherness of growing up in, um, you know, lots of other ways you can feel that you don't fit in in the world. Um, So that's that really shaped me as a writer. And I was able to kind of have empathy for other people and see what they were struggling with because everybody's struggling with something. So is this an illness that you were able to recover from? I mean, you've done so much in your life. It doesn't seem like you've been limited by it. (laughs) No, I I have had illness my whole life in different ways and um, have just gone on. I mean, you pick yourself up. That's what my mom taught me. All of us. I was the youngest of six children. And you just keep going. You kind of pretend everything's okay. I mean, it wasn't a great idea. I think it was like 30 when I decided to be a waitress. And my hands were completely gnarled. And my elbows didn't straighten. But I just was going to be a waitress. I was living in Calgary. And I was writing scripts. And I needed money. So I was a waitress. <laughs> and I just did it. Wow. And uh, I think I've, I've definitely had times where we've been in remission. And other, you know, when I lived in uh, East Africa, I felt the best I've ever felt because of the climate. Um, So it's been really interesting. But I've always sort of been meddling something. Um, 
and you just keep going and you do, you know, life is long. So I, I've done a lot of things, but uh, <laughs> it seems a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, I would think most people who are battling a, a chronic illness like that wouldn't go off and live in East Africa. How did that happen? <laughs> I know. Well, uh, I know I had a, a boyfriend as curiously, it, he, we were living in Calgary. I was working at the BAMP center for the arts and uh, we were both artists at the time. I was still doing photography and he wanted to learn Swahili. We both wanted to, you know, go travel. And so we had this idea we'd go, you know, for, go away for a year. And really that was quite um, a pivotal moment for me going there. And we ended up breaking up during the trip <laughs> as, as life goes, <laughs> but um, we got there and we really wanted to do some volunteer work. And so we found an, an orphanage that, I mean, it was the height of the AIDS pandemic. It was the early nineties. So it, every, and you know, I wasn't thinking, Hey, you'll get malaria. You might get really sick. I just didn't think about things like wow. that. I don't know if that's stupidity or or not or what it is, bravery, but it's probably not neither. It just is going through your days and just, I always liked adventure and, and, and travel always made me feel alive. So Have Mercy on Us is a collection of, is it 10 short stories? Yeah. And it is, yeah. Um, like what time period of your life did you are these stories from are they all written in recent years or are they from a, a more extended period so a few are from um you know i have one in there but from the voice of um zora neale hurston which is very brave for me to write i think but that was i wrote during um probably about 15 years ago um and that's probably the oldest one the rest are in the last sort of seven, eight years, something like that. But it takes a long time to write a story for me. I uh, I leave stories. I want to get every single word right. I, I leave them for a few months and I uh, come back and, and, and shape them. So a lot of them take place in different places, you know, around the world, places I've lived um, and know quite well, London, uh, East Africa. I have a story in Greece, a place that I haven't really lived, but I've been in enough Mediterranean climates to kind of work that out um and toronto cal you know a lot of different locations but using my imagination i find to write about a place i have to not be in that place really why so, is that yeah it gives you perspective and distance and you see images more clearly uh in that way i mean now i live in southern california and i only have one story uh that's it's in Catalina Island it takes place on Catalina Island and again that's not where I live but it's a it's an island you can get to like in three hours from here but none of them are in the city of Orange <laughs> where I live so and I write about Memphis too because we lived there but now you know we don't but since I've moved from there I can more easily write about that city. that's that's so. fascinating because of course everyone the standard advice to writers is write what you know so, you know, writing yeah. about where you live is common for a lot of people. But, yeah, mm -hmm. so just in, in a, so you say the images are clearer when you're not there. Yes. I mean, I have to know. I have yes. to know a place. I mean, uh, I had a novel that I wrote that I kept trying to change the location. And, you know, I wrote it 
taking place in New York and then it was maybe in <laughs> London or something. And I, I, I had to, because it was a childhood story, I moved it back to Niagara Falls, the town that I grew up, which of course is such an exciting and interesting place to write about. I just didn't ever put it there. But when I finally put it back in that town, uh, it really, it really worked a wow. lot better. Wow. So is this your first published book? Yes, it but is. you have mm-hmm. written novels as well. I have. I have a novel that I'm still, I, you know, I still love <laughs> and want to uh, sell, but I haven't. I haven't yet. So, and previously you were a portrait photographer, or previously, and are you yes. still? Yes, are, are you still doing photography as well? No. No, I mean I. I don't. It's funny. I seem to like, I leave places and then I'm gone and then I leave, um, jobs and I'm, that's it. <laughs> so I, I'm still, I mean, I still go to art galleries and love photography shows and I'm mean, fascinated. Uh, and I took a lot of pictures of my daughter when she was growing up and, but now I sort of passed it on. She's interested in it, which is, which is fascinating, but I don't, I mean, I can't even do iPhone photos that are really good. I feel like. <laughs> So So I'm just interested in in how the transition from photography to writing happened. Or were you doing, were you writing while you were a photographer too, and then just started focusing more on the writing or? Yeah, I, um, I was doing photography and it was really, uh, I did it to stay in London. And again, I was, it's another boyfriend. My life is, you know, based <laughs> on these boyfriends. It seems like but it's not really true. But I studied photography and he was a writer and I wanted to be a writer. And I kept that privy to myself in terms of, I was writing a lot. And it was very interesting that I, I sort of wanted to be, do what he was doing. And we did some travel books together where he he did the writing and I did the photography. Uh, and that was fabulous. I mean, I loved photography. But after we broke up, I just kept writing and I kept writing and I kept writing. And really, I've had jobs. I've had to have nine to five jobs. I mean, that's what you have to do as a writer a lot of times. And I would wake up in the morning at like five or five thirty and start writing and then get on the tube. This is when I lived in Toronto and get to my office job for, you know, nine o'clock start. Um so it's always it's always been like that. Writing's always been what's it's really like a for me a spiritual practice, right? I mean it it's writing my pages in the morning about what I'm really thinking, feeling, what's, you know, on my heart, but then transitioning into a character that I'm thinking about. So do you still have the nine to five or are you writing full time now? No, luckily I do not. I teach, um, I teach a creative writing, uh, short story class at Chapman University right now. And I love that, but it's, it's not nine to five. So I think that's, I'm really loving having a day. It's, it's a real privilege to be a writer, right? It's very, you really are lucky to, to write and spend the time doing it. And, um, I have a memoir I'm working on now and then an, another, a novel, but it's, it's stories, uh, linked right, stories right, as a novel. Right. So, so, so the I short stories, um, I'm wondering why, you know, some people are novelists, some people are short story writers, some people do both. Mm-hmm. Why do you decide to sit down and write a short story rather than working on a novel, for example? 
Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think it's, you know, when a short story is done more than a, I think I like vignettes of people in their lives and um, people taking one direction or another. And I'm always fascinated by the, the choices we make that shape the rest of our lives. So one person deciding, like me, deciding to go to France for the first time when I really went to abroad changed the trajectory of everything for me. And it could be just a, but I love in short stories that it's just a small moment that changes everything. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of short stories. So I read a lot of short stories and I think they're almost harder than novels. I am very precise about every single word counting, not just every sentence, uh, every, you know, every line, it's every word. And then when you get that word, the whole thing sings and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I guess the, the craft of it, I really love. Um, I really love the craft of a short story and, and, and novels, you can be a little bit more, um, I don't know, expansive, right, I guess. Right. Uh, and as, as a writer, I don't know if you've read me, but they're, very um staccato in the delivery they're very like this is this and then this and and so you get the shape of it very quickly and you get the trouble quickly because it's so important to create trouble <laughs> straight away in the story that is a very good point no. that is a very good point yes it's um these these stories are written about a wide variety of characters in a wide variety of places what is it that connects them uh, yearning for love, connection, wholeness. Really, it's about, I mean, if it's sort of, you know, to say it's, it's hallmark to say that my stories are about love, but what else <laughs> is there? Um, you know, there's, there's so much, there's so many women in these, in these stories that are yearning to find their power. Um, and I, you know, it's a reflection of me. I've always been yearning to, what's my power? Am I really good enough? Am I, you know, so I love, um, creating these strokes of women who seem like they're not, uh, you know, capable or, uh, you know, powerful in their relationships to just kind of do something interesting or different um, and surprise the reader. So, uh, and, but I, you know, I also have a story of um, a, a man, and I don't know where this came from, but he's in Portland. He's a retired older gentleman and he flies all the way to Nairobi Nairobi to see his son who's working at an NGO and he wants to bring him back to Portland so he can um, help his sister who is going through a depression and you know there's this there's this son who's doing this amazing you know philanthropic NGO work helping people that are really really desperately in need and the father wants him to come home and it's really the tenderness of the father not really knowing what to do with the daughter. But then this he does this great thing and goes <laughs> so far um, to get the son, which, which, you know, the reader's thinking, why are you doing this? He's doing he's doing real work here. But then you also have the empathy for the father, even though he's this, you know, driven by, by money guy. He doesn't know what to do. He's, he's a bit of a mess up as a dad, but not a lot of messed up dads in there. <laughs> Um, but, but you, you, you kind of love them. And that was sort of my father in a way, because I really deeply loved my father, but he, he, you know, he had a lot of, you know, stuff that 
wasn't ideal as a father, but we sure loved that man. He had charisma and charm. And I think, I think my characters have that mm -hmm. too. So you never really know how much of your own life goes into your work. So how do you, like you said, you don't know where the idea for this particular story came from. So do you, yeah. when you sit down to write, do you already have a fully fledged vignette in mind or do you have a character in mind or do you have a seed of an idea? How, what do you start with? Oh, usually character. I have an idea for a character. Absolutely. Um, I, or I, or I have uh, an overheard conversation when I teach writing, I often, I do this thing where we go out and, um, to, you know, the circle where, or, or the common lounge at the university. And we actually write down, you know, dialogue that we hear. So if I hear really juicy dialogue, I always write that down in my notes, you know, in my phone or in my journal or whatever, because I, I really want to get the what people dialogue is what people do to each other. Is Somebody said that. I don't know who, but I love that idea. It's what we do to each other in dialogue because it's go, it cuts so deep and it, it's it says so much. Um and the way that uh, the other person receives it and comes back, it's just fascinating. Can you give me an example of a story in Have Mercy on Us that started from overheard dialogue and what the overheard dialogue was? Oh, okay. Uh, that's a good question. Um, well, the, the, um, there's a story called How I Became a Banker. Um, that it, this was a dialogue that came into my own head because <laughs> it starts by the opening line is, uh, when I was 12 years old, I made a promise to myself that I'd make a load of money, but I, um, that's a, like a, a promise, a promise. When you make a promise, every story has a promise. And that was something I wrote down and I kept it with me. And I don't know, it, it's not me, that's for sure, <laughs> uh, in terms of that. But I thought, what if you made a promise to yourself and then you kept that promise like this, this woman does, this character. And so she goes through the whole thing and she remembers a memory with her father, but she's remembering it from being like a, she's about 45 now. Her marriage is broken up. She's a banker. Sure. She's got lots of money, but she's wondering if it was all, you know, if she did it all based on this shop worn promise to herself, if she did it, if she did all of this and now what is her life? And she doesn't have love. She's by herself. She's, and, um, so that's sort of, that really came from that line, that oh, story. Wow. Well, you're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Lisa Cupolo, author of the short story collection, Have Mercy on Us. Were many of these stories published in periodicals before they came into this collection? I think all okay. but two, yes, <laughs> different places. And what yeah. is that process like these days in terms of trying to publish short stories? <laughs> yeah, it's really difficult. <clears throat> you know, um, you submit to, uh, you know, I just send my stories out via submittable like anybody else. And you you just wait to hear a few. It's really, really difficult. And when you get a bite, you could send. I mean, right now I probably have about, um, I guess, 10, not 10, probably three stories out to 
20 or 30 different places, you have to be vigilant with this kind of stuff to get it published or get it looked at. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. But man, is it exciting when something yeah. hits and you get something published. And again, it's, you know, very little money, if any. And then you post it on your story and your something and some people read it and, and that's great. Um, so yeah, but it does, it's, it's, you have to be vigilant. You really have to believe in your work and keep, um, and multi uh, simultaneous submissions are okay now. Cause there was a time way back when, yes. or, you know, you had to wait and then it was yeah. by snail mail too. You had to send it in, wait to hear back before you could send it somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's kind yeah. of ridiculous. So I don't do any that are like that. And I don't think many are like that anymore because it's so, it's so competitive. And, you know, there's so, it, you don't have the, the two months or whatever and life's yeah. very fast. And, um, so I, um, I think that's, that's kind of gone away that's now. That's good. A bit. That's good. Are there, yeah. what are some of the kind of the places where every short story writer wants to get published? Oh, you mean like the New Yorker yeah, places yeah. and like that? I think it's really unrealistic. To me, it just seems like the same writers get published mm. there a lot. You have to be quite famous to, to get published there. I've certainly sent some stories there. Uh, but I feel like uh, Narrative Magazine is one of the best now. I love that magazine. Um, they they have a lot of ways that they're you do a weekly send out of short stories. They are always... Um, you know, soliciting writers and they're just, it's just a really great magazine for writers. I support them a lot. Uh, where else? I mean, at other places, I mean, like Plowshares, I still really like, uh, the Kenyon Review. There, there are a lot of really excellent ones. One story. Um, and these aren't all places I've published, but I, I do. Are read a lot these. of them, uh, connected with the university press? A lot of the places where short stories are published. Yeah, they seem yeah. to be yes narrative is not but many of them many yeah my of them are. the one that mm -hmm. i read that publishes short stories among other things is the sun i don't know if you're familiar with that but oh, i was just gonna <laughs> mention that yes that's my yeah, favorite my, i think i've been reading that for 20 years or something like that a long time it's so yeah. beautiful every every i mean i've only sent one or two there stories but i would love to be published there have no, you been published no. there I, I haven't been mm -hmm. writing in a long time because my other life my day job really took over my writing uh, any time to write and um i have a manufacturing company yeah. so that's uh <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, wow that's that's, that's amazing. A, a lot of work yeah but um but someday you know i'm getting close to retirement age so I may get back to writing one of these days. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. It just builds yeah. up, right? Yeah. And you, you know, right. So Lisa, would you like to read from one of your stories for us? Yeah, that would be great. Um, I'll read from a story called You're Here Now. And I'll just read a little bit at like three pages. Perfect. Is that okay? Sure. Something like that? Perfect. Okay. Okay. I knew Jimmy Pilata was my birth father in the same way I knew the brown stain on my forearm was a birthmark. Everyone has a birthmark somewhere. Birthmark, birth father. <laughs> they carried the they carried the same weight in my life. Besides, the man had eight other children. His plate runneth over. 
I've never met Jimmy Pilata, but I'm on the way. I'm on the way to his funeral. He died in the car crash two nights ago. A hit and run on Highway 5, according to the Western Wheel, our local paper. Alone this morning in my apartment, I read the names of his children out loud from the obit page. Susan, Sean, Anna, Danny, Connie, Patty, Carrie, Christina, the half-siblings I've never spoken to. When I was younger, I'd spot them around our small Canadian town, in the Zares grocery and at the soccer field the one summer I played. Another time in Donatella's hair salon, I sat in the chair behind Anna, who was nearest my age. Anna was having her long black hair cut into a French bob, while I was having my pixie cut dyed platinum blonde. She didn't notice me. I altered my look often back then. I had dreadful rainbows of colored hair and wore things like jean shorts with fishnets and Converse high tops. It was my practice I'm different look to show my individuality and my allegiance to my mother, Jean. I was a single child to a single parent. It won't come up, Sylvie, Jean told me every time I fretted over how much I favored the Pilata children with my almond eyes and olive complexion. You look just like me, she'd say. Our faces match and we're big boned. I believed my mother back then. Her words were my gospel. Every morning from the time I was 11, I straightened my curls to look more like her perfect blonde strands, which fell elegantly to her chin. In the small prairie town where we lived, ethnic people stood out. Everyone knew the Chens, for example, because they were the only Asian family and they owned the 7-Eleven at Maine and Pine. There were a handful of second-generation immigrant families in town. The Pilatas were the most prominent among them. They were important in ways my mother frowned upon. Jimmy Pilata was famous for his quick and painless root canals. Rumor had it if he'd, he'd give you a deal if you were down on your luck. Jean took me 15 minutes to High River, the next town over, for my dental checkups every six months. Yes, my mother took care of everything. I didn't even know I resented her for it. It was just the air I breathed. We were important in a different way. We had always traveled exotically, and I was an intellect's daughter. The pious, worldly ones we were, stuck in a one-horse one town. At least that was the posture we liked to take. Jean and I lived in a condo in the north end of Okotoks. The Pilata family had a tract mansion in the south end, so my, my half-siblings and I went to different schools. They're a self-absorbed Latin family. They don't care for anyone outside their fold, my mother said, taking away any hope I had that they'd come looking for me. When their mother died of stomach cancer three years ago, I wrote a sympathy card to the family, thinking the affair with Jean might be less threatening since their mother was gone. I wrote the card a hundred times, but of course, I never sent it. Now that I'm 32 years old, Jean and I talk less. I know my mother would prefer I were an eccentric academic living in Paris, but I'm quite the opposite. I'm a parole officer with long brown hair, and I buy my clothes off the rack at Old Navy. I spend my days keeping tabs on murderers and drug cases and send offenders back to jail if need be. Anyway, the last time we spoke, she brought up marriage again. They don't have any staying power, these men you date, Sylvie. All I want is a normal life for you. Felons do not inspire my dating pool, mother. My feminist life wasn't the right thing after all. You need a shrink, she said. 
I've had a total of four boyfriends and ended it with each of them. I don't need to pay someone to tell me it's a pattern. A therapist would want to pillage through the effects of growing up fatherless. No thanks. In the crowded parking lot of Snodgrass Funeral Home, I find an empty spot near the entrance, as if it were reserved for me. It suddenly hits me like a punch that the man who has lived in my imagination for so long is gone forever. I won't ever meet him. Somewhere deep, I must have had the childish idea that one day we'd spend hours in cafes talking or walking together along the Bow River, making up for lost time. I have an urge to call my mother to tell her this, to tell her everything, but I deliberately tighten my hold on my purse where my cell phone is. When I wipe my boots on the entrance mat, I notice a tiny bud on a larch tree next to the heavy door. Heavy door. I inhale my deepest breath and join the crowd in the lobby. Jimmy Pallone in a row at the entrance to the parlor, all tall, dark, and lean. They are lined up oldest to youngest. I wait my turn, barely breathing. Susan is first. So sorry about your father, I say, almost boldly. I'm Sylvie, Sylvie Young. My solar plexus tighten and my ribs feel like steel pipes. Thank you, Susan says. It has to be hardest for the oldest. The woman looks a wreck. I'm sorry about your father. I say this to each of them. Their faces are familiar and beautiful. They are petite and all are all black shine and heavy jewelry. Dressed to the nines. That's how my mother would describe them. She liked people who dressed to the nines. I have never been more, more aware of my big boneness and my plain style. When I get to the end of the line to Christina, the youngest, I suppress, suppress a gasp at how similar she looks to a sixth grade photo of me, the one that I keep in my office drawer to remind myself not to let that little person down, that I am brave and should trust people and think good, good thoughts, not bad ones. I pause extra long in front of Christina until the desire to hug her passes and I move on. Thank you, Lisa. That was Lisa Cupolo reading from Have Mercy on Us. You mentioned um, earlier that um, one of your stories is written from the point of view of Zora Neale Hurston. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. did you, well, first of all, some, maybe not everyone's familiar with her, so um, why don't you explain who she is and why you chose oh, Zora yeah. Neale Hurston? Yeah, she's, I mean, she's probably the most famous uh, African-American writer uh, in American history. Um, I chose her because I was, I moved from Toronto to Memphis to marry my husband. And uh, I was, I did my MFA in Memphis and I um, became, well, if you can imagine, I traveled a lot and I was living in Toronto, which is really one of the most multicultural cities in the world besides, you know, New York, Dubai, places like that. Um, I, so I went to Memphis and I was uh, shocked at how segregation, not segregation, but just how it was only, well, it was mostly black, but some white. And it just didn't, there was no sort of integration still. It felt like I was going back in time. And so much so when I went to teach my first class, um, you know, just a regular comp class, 
the black kids were on one side of the class and the white kids were on the other. And I was so uh, fascinated and just, you know, it was, I became so um, immersed in the history and I wanted to read everything I could get my hands on. So I did an MFA, but I also did sort of an undergrad in African-American literature and, and read, you know, was studied um, just, I mean, it was, it was a passion. And so uh, one of the professors that I was studying with, he, um, he wanted, I had to do like an intellectual essay and I'm terrible at, at essays, just <laughs> terrible. I can only write stories. I can't write essays to save my life. I can't prove a point. And so I said, what if I write a story for you about everything I read, you know, and I had this idea. Um, I learned that at the end of her life, Zora Neale Hurston, she'd had so much acclaim, but she was poor she died poor. Um, but she worked as a maid in a motel, uh, in Fort Pierce, Florida, um, near the end of her life. And I just thought this woman with this brilliance and, you know, who traveled, who'd studied everywhere, who had all this. And I imagined her in that role as, um, in the hotel, in the motel. And so the, the idea that I came up with and, and wrote for this class was about her, visiting a motel room of a guy who's a white guy, maybe in his twenties. And he's in there typing, writing. He's got this motel room and he thinks he's like Hemingway with a bottle of scotch and he's going to write all day and smoke <laughs> cigarettes. And there's Zora who, you know, he doesn't recognize of course as Zora. And, um, and so they have this conversation and most of the, the story is this conversation. It, it is, it's all the conversation that the two of them have in this motel room she never really lets on who she is but he knows she's somebody based on how mm. it goes and um yeah so well it's interesting because mm -hmm. you you said that she's probably the most famous african-american writer in history which is true yeah. and yet i didn't learn about her in high school right yeah, yeah. and that's, a, that's yeah. such a shame and I thought just because I was Canadian, I mean, I really had to study a lot of American, you know, history, too. But I think it's she is now. I mean, my daughter studied her, of course. And I hope I mean, but maybe you, you don't know until till later. But, yeah, she should be part yeah, of the canon. For sure. Mm -hmm. When you went to put together this collection, how did you choose what stories to include? Ah, um, that's a good point. I, I wanted 10. That just was a good number for me. I like numbers. And um, I had probably four or five others I could have put in. And I just I just wanted to keep it to 10. And I chose it based on the kind of the range of stories. And, um, you know, some when I was when I was first, I mean, this one led a W.S. Porter Prize. But when I was first sending it to agents, they were like, oh, your stories are all too different. And I think that's probably now what the what other people I hope will think that's what's so cool about it. I mean, there are a lot of um, women characters, but there's and and a lot of locations. But um, I kind of liked that. I liked that it was you know I I don't have the same story I'm trying to tell over and over again. Right. Um, it's imagining from a lot of different characters and a lot of different voices. So tell me what this about this Porter Prize, W.S. Porter Prize. Yeah, it's through uh, Regal House uh, Publishers, and they they pick a collection. And I 
um, I hadn't, I had tried for another prize that they do. It's just, it's, Reef House is my publisher now, and I just love them. They're just, it's a women-owned, innovative, um, forward-thinking, cool publishing house. And I, when I, I got shortlisted for, for the award, there were 10 um, people, and I recognized a lot of the people on the list. And my name was at the 10th spot. And I said to my husband, there's no way I'm going to win this because I know these writers and I know they're good and I've read their stories in journals and they put me at number 10. <laughs> that was like, I was the last, you know, you, you just do that. Your mind goes to all sorts of mental gymnastics about these things. I said, there's no way I'm going to win it. And, um, and yeah, and then a month or so later, and it was during the pandemic when I found out it was, um, so that was like really added to some joy over a really hard, oh, hard time, right, for everybody. So, so that was, so you put the, you submitted the entire collection and mm -hmm. yeah, it's based okay. on the whole story. And collection. then once it was selected, what was the process like between that and publication? Was there a lot of, was there editing going back and forth with, yeah. Yes, for sure. Editing. I mean, Regal has, has it, has it down pretty well the way that they kind of, they take their time and it's almost like it's like two, two and a half years between the time they, they buy the manuscript and then they're publishing it. So every, I don't know, six months, there's things you have to do to get ready. And then, you know, in terms of getting the, the manuscript right. And then, you know, starting kind of, you know, pre-publicity, <laughs> I guess, picking covers, you know, so there's a whole, and they really have, there's a really uh, a great bond that they make between writers too. Um, I've made a friend who's uh, got a book coming out this summer, Candy Sorry. It's called Magdalena. And she lives in Newport Beach and I live in Orange, but our publisher is in North Carolina. But we met through our publisher and we've become like just great, great friends. So it's it's a really great um, press. Uh, and yeah, it's been a long time coming. So my book comes out. <laughs> next week uh <laughs> january 24th so i'm really really I excited bet. but you already have i'm assuming the galleys in hand and um so you've yeah. seen the actual physical manifestation how does that feel it's really a beautiful cover i just love the cover so much yeah it's it's i don't know i think that's with everything you you it's almost like not even real yet <laughs> maybe next week when it's published and i you know i hear from people and i get more reviews and things but um it's i mean i i'm really really grateful and i feel a lot of joy uh to have a book out you know it's it's a dream so I'm I'm thrilled. It's got this amazing turquoise cover, and um, yeah, I'm gonna have it sort of framed or do something with it. It's what so is pretty. the the meaning of the cover? The meaning of the cover. So it's got a silhouette of a woman, and it's got an airplane over her face. I mean, it's it's a lot of it is the departure, right? Of of it's showing kind of where that there's going to be some travel in this book, different locations. Um, and, but I love the silhouette and I, um, there's a painting that I, that I bought when I was in Nairobi and it's called taking one direction and it's three silhouettes of women and their heads are kind of slanted in one direction. And it's beautiful, like dashed, uh, oil painting, pastel colors, taking one direction. And I feel like that's what, you know, the characters have taken a direction in each of my stories and you're going to see what happens when they do that. You know, just from the woman that I, I read the story where she's um, she's going to meet her father 
who's dead, but she's going to his funeral and she's going to face this thing for the first time in her life, going to face these siblings um, at this point. And so I think that's that the urgency of um, that. And I love that there's a face on the cover or a silhouette of a face because it's and pointing at it. It's a, it's a profile. So the profile is like, you know, you're going somewhere. You're, you're, you know, <laughs> you're on your way, I guess. How much did you have to do with selecting the cover? Nothing wow. at all. Yeah, they, they really, they have a great, um, but I, I gave ideas. So I gave ideas, but none of my ideas came. I had this really cool idea of my daughter running in this field and her skirt. And, you know, it was sort of like ridiculous. So I made this image. I did do some photography there um, and sent it in and, and they, they thought of something much better. So that so was great. So with, in the editing process, is this the first time that your work has, well, no, I'm assuming every time you get published in a, in a periodical, there's some editing. Right. So how do you, how does the editing process work for you? Is it, um, like they send an entire, all these notes and you send it back. Is there a lot of back and forth? Um, I, because a lot of my stories, not a lot, but sort of they, they've been edited already. And I'm really, like I said, I, I won't send a story out till it's a hundred percent clean, or I think that it can't be any, you know, better in terms of the language. So I've, I've always had really light editing done on my work. Um, yeah, I, ha I mean, the editing process with Regal, at, at that point was, yes, I, I had definitely questions and things that they wanted clarity on, which was great, but it didn't take, it didn't take much. It wasn't a big process for me. Great. When you did, so one of these stories came from your, when you were working on your MFA, is another one like uh -huh. your MFA thesis? Was that part of, part of this work too? No. Oh, no, <laughs> no, that's. No, that's another oh. novel that's not nowhere. <laughs> yep, that's what happens. You got to have the novels on the right. Bed, right? Yeah. So no, that's the only thing from that time. That, but no, I mean, all of this stuff is is more rigorous in this, you know, last decade. So, so. do you, what was the like as a writer? What did going through the MFA program do for you? It gave me time. That's all it does. It gives you time when you're, you know, I had to work and things, but I, um, I was teaching, but I also, it gave me time to not be, um, uh, working a job, right? So you had that day where you could read and write, read and write, read and write. Um, so it did, it was wonderful, but I, I mean, I was pregnant at the time when I was doing my MFA. So I did have a child. <laughs> so it was a lot of juggling. I mean, nothing's ever that like, that seems ideal. Like, yes, I just did my MFA and I had a lot of time. No, I mean, it was, it was hard. It was, you know, it's all, it's struggle, right? It's you're, you're juggling, you're struggling, you're trying to make, uh, but I did, I did learn a lot too from the different professors I had. Um, but I really, the most time is, is, is the time to read. So you're getting all that good writing in your brain and then the time to, to actually write and refine and uh, hone the craft. And you're accountable to someone for what you're producing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. That's great. And you're, I mean, I loved workshops. People complain about workshops. I love workshops. Because it's not you looking at it. You have these wonderful, you know, 12 set of eyes that are seeing things. And, and really, you just, you, I mean, if things don't resonate with you, you just don't 
take that. But a lot of people, I mean, there's so many smart people in the world who, who can give you insight. So I, I really believe that workshops are a great place. Yeah. Did you ever have any fellow writers in your workshops who just were mean or did you not? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And at that time, you know, if I were more, I mean, I have writers groups now and things like that that I'm part of. And, and it's still a thing. You know, everybody has a different personality. Not everybody's going to be like, okay, what I loved was this. I loved all this. But there's some people that are just going to be like, hey, this story doesn't work. I don't buy it. You know, <laughs> I mean, that you have to have a lot of, you have to have thick skin. You have to have thick skin in terms of don't take it personally and just, you know, know that that's part of their character or just that's their delivery. And maybe you do need to refine something. But, um, I mean, a lot of times it's bugged me too, of course, but you learn, you learn, you learn, you keep going and you learn. And, um, but definitely, I mean, I, now that I teach workshop, I see students who, uh, are not as kind to other students and, uh, but usually if I bring love into the classroom and I bring acceptance and kindness and say, hey, we're all, this is all, we're at work in progress. We're all just, you know, nothing's perfect. We're just trying to get it, a story here written out and, and let's try and encourage each other and be there. You really have to set that stage for the workshop. Uh, as the teacher in the beginning, I think, and then everybody else kind of, it's, you have to really trust people to read your work. As you know, it's really laying your heart out right. there. And sometimes a crit critique may come from a position of, well, this isn't the market for your story, basically. This isn't, you know, somebody, if you're in a writer's group or in a class with somebody who only reads stories about hunting or something, and they're not going to want, they're right. not going to like your story because, yeah. Yeah, it's not absolutely their thing. and now i mean so many people write zombie <laughs> stories in my classes and you know a lot of sci it's mostly sci-fi fantasy I, i'll have to be honest that's what i read a lot i'll get one or two that are doing kind of literary stuff so i the, the rules still apply you know you have to make a character interesting you have to want me to keep turning the pages even if it's you know i don't know boho who lives on planet whatever, you know, I still have to be interested in them. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a, a change from, you know, more recent classes that I teach and, um, yeah, but you really have to, you, you have to use words that make it interesting and it's really about, and it's not about politics either. That's the other thing is you can't put your politics in your, in your stories. That's a whole other story, but topic. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Lisa Cupolo, author of Have Mercy on Us, which is a short story collection. You can't put your politics in. I mean, people do. They do, but you can't push it because then it becomes it becomes too much about that, and you lose the story. Mm. Then it's nonfiction. Then it's then it's just somebody beating their politics on the head. And because you want to, what I think is you want to show more of the tenderness of people. Say somebody's really a really strong, oh, I don't know, like uh, environmentalist, for instance. You want to show them, but then maybe you want to show the farmer who isn't that way, but who is tender. Mm. You know what I mean? That's really what. She, to be more human and to be to be, I, I love to show the tender parts of people in stories more than you know you're bad and we're right because we're this way and you're not 
and so that's not really a story to me. That's just being, I don't know. Good point. Posturing. And, Lisa, do yeah. you have a favorite story in this collection? Oh, or is that gosh. like asking if you have a favorite um, child? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think um, Felt and Left has have the same letters is the first story. And it's actually a springboard for the, the novel and stories I'm writing right now. Um, so I have this character, Daria, uh, in the story who's there. She and her husband and her daughter are in, um, I won't tell much of it, but they're on holiday in Greece and something happens there. And so my novel and stories um, takes place when they come back to Toronto, the three of them together. And I couldn't let that story, that character Daria go. I just loved her so much and wanted to keep writing. Where her. did she come so. from? What but she's no, from? Toronto. How did, she's how did you find her? Oh, she came to me on a whim uh, when we were actually in Catalina Island, which is like you know off the coast of California. It's like this little amazing, weird, eccentric, neat place. Um, to, to visit. And I was writing, um, I saw her in, in one of the care, the people that was walking by down the street. It was crazy. I just saw her. And then I imagined her on an Island, which was kind of similar to where we were. Um, but not where I, where I was. Cause I, you know, like I said in the beginning, I can't write that place. So I imagined it in Greece and I don't know, sometimes you get these, you know, premonitions, things that come from, I don't know where. Um, she's a combination of my mom, me, and then this really passionate person that I don't know. So there's like, you know, a lot of people rolled into this Daria character. And the circumstance that she finds herself in, was that inspired by something in particular, something you read, something you saw, or just... Um... It's, uh, yes, it's actually from the Durrells in Corfu. Um, uh, yes, you see yes. that show? Yeah. Okay. Remember when Larry falls in love with this, well, or she sort of falls in love with him. One of the w women from the town who's like gorgeous, dark haired, you know, sexy diva. So she, she is inspired by the character that sort of seduces her husband. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> so that's how the whole, all of it came together. Cause you don't know where these pieces connect. So you start writing. So what is your writing process like? Do you sit down? Do you write on paper or computer? Computer. I write, I get ideas in the night. I write them in my phone. I get ideas in the morning and I write them in my journal, but I'm always going, then I go and sit down in the mornings and write. When I was young and a lot more wild, I would write all night long. And now I'm old <laughs> and not as fun and I have to make the time. You have to sit in the chair. I mean, there's, there's no way to get it done without just, you know, in the morning I get my coffee and I work. Do you like to start, like some people like to start, to start by rewriting the day before some people like to start fresh what okay. do you do oh i definitely reread whatever i've written the day before i'm starting at the beginning every day especially with a short story i go back to the very beginning read to where i get to refining refining it's a it's a horrible thing but i might miss a word so i go back six <laughs> most stories are you know 10 to 20 page you know somewhere in there but i go back because 
the opening is has to be the sharpest, sharpest, sharpest you can make it. And um, and that's that's my process. So in the definition of a writer as a plotter or a pantser, sounds like you're a plotter. Are you? Yes, I'm a I'm a character yeah, plotter. Yeah, I think. but by which yeah, uh-huh. the plotter versus pantser is uh, the plotter like tries to get every part right before they move on to the next part, whereas the pantser writes the whole thing as fast as possible and then goes back. Hmm. So. I'm a plotter wanting to ah. be. <laughs> <laughs> I envy those people. Yeah, yes, I want to be those yeah. people. Yeah, I tend to be like that too. I like to really be sure that what I've got down is right before I go on to the next. Yeah. But I envy the other people too. Yeah. I mean, that's wonderful. You can just keep going and go, yeah, it's good enough. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. We'll fix it later. There's we'll a... fix it later. <laughs> yeah. And my husband always says, uh, lower your standards and keep going. Lower your standards for yourself and keep, keep going. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. So what are, you said you're working on, um, Connected stories now. And novels. And uh-huh. do you yeah. have a publisher for that already? No. No, I don't. I haven't, I haven't had it finished yet. I, I don't have an agent mm. right now. Um, so I, you know, I'm doing the work, getting it to where I want it to be, and then I'll, and then I'll work on that. Yeah, that's, it's, it takes that's the hard time. part because mm-hmm. you've got the writing, you've got the trying to get it published, and then you've got the promotion. Once you do get it published. Yes. <laughs> My least favorite part, which I'm in the thick oh. of right now. But I'm just trying to be, again, playful with it and just have fun with it and not take myself too seriously because it's no big deal. I mean, you know, it's a big deal to me, but it's no big deal, really. I mean, it's, you know, big, but you know what I mean? Like, it's all these details and things and, oh, I have to post this and post that. It's like, no, just live your day and um, do what you can do and then keep going um because it's all so new and we were expected to be a lot of different people now in terms of the writer then you have to be glamorous and then you have to be young and then you have to be able to to do a you know a, a tiktok book talk something and all of these things which i'm just like ah, i just want to be real and get back to writing <laughs> and i you know i hope people read my work and i love talking about it um but you know i was a publicist for three years in Toronto and, and worked with a lot of amazing writers. And, um, but I wasn't a great, I mean, I, I was great for my, it took, it was a lot of hard work for me to be a good poet. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's, it's like you said, it's a whole nother job. Toolbox. Yeah. yeah it's a whole bit different set of yeah. skills yeah. for sure. And you do have a website. I do. Yes. LisaCuplo.com. And on there you've got, it's a very pretty site. I like the green that you use. <laughs> Thank you. And my niece oh, made it for very me. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. And it's available um, now. I mean, for pre-order, but it's out next week. And then if you, if I would love good, apparently Goodreads is where I need to get people to, if you do like it, if you could um, rate it, share it. I don't know. Well, I have to ask you about um, the blurb on the cover because this mm-hmm. is like Tim. It's from Tim O'Brien, author of The Things They Carried, which in almost every writing class I've ever taken, he's like the pointed to as the king of short story, right? 
and um, and he and he, and he wrote, "I wish I had written all ten of these brilliant, tender, and beautiful stories. This book deserves prizes." So, how did you get that blurb? Do you know him? <laughs> <laughs> I well, I met him at uh, Suwannee Writers Conference, probably I don't know, ten years ago with my husband, and um, my husband was teaching there too, and they know each other. And, um, and so we've known them over the years. Um, but Tim is not somebody, I mean, he's, he's terrifying when he's in workshop because he's honest, brutal, (laughs) and I've never been in a workshop with him, but I really loved his work, love his work and him. And I, you know, so many of my friends have said, don't ask him or whatever. So I just wrote him an email and I said, would you be interested in reading my and he said okay send it lisa and then i mean i want to tell you like five days later six days later i got this incredible blurb from him he just sat down and read it and he i mean that's i mean the best compliment that is very high praise yeah yeah absolutely everybody and, and he he really has that's been I mean, you can't imagine how that feels. That to me is like, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, but he's he's definitely a straight shooter. He's he's not the kind of person that um, sugarcoats things. People are you know afraid of him because he's like this. You know, in, in workshop, he's like, this is terrible. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. So the the fact that my stories touched him or made him you know feel something and he it, it really well. means the world to me. I can't. Hi, it's high praise yeah. indeed. Thank you. Thanks, well, Lisa, Monica. we're out of time. I want to thank you for being with us today. And we always close with a quote. So I chose one from Zora Neale Hurston. Love oh, makes your soul crawl out from its hiding place. Beautiful. I love it. And That's I think perfect. it fits your book. Oh. So. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's Thank wonderful. Thank you. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.